Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello, welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. How are you doing, Steve? Are you well? I'm good, yes. Um, it's been... I, I am... I'm. Uh, yeah, I am well, actually. It's, uh, I've, I've, been, I've, had a, I've had a good week. Um, it's been... I've enjoyed lots of good TV this week. Right, um, okay. Are you watching... Um, and everyone, as soon as you've finished listening to this podcast... And you must listen right to the end this week. Um, but as soon as you um, are finished listening to the podcast, do go onto iPlayer and watch uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, the Adam Curtis um, series. Have you seen any of this, Steve? I have things to say about Adam Curtis. <laughs> what, on this podcast? He's, he's Well, I've, I've got to say he's not my, my favourite Curtis. Uh, well, no, he's not I'm my favourite Curtis. I'm thinking the list of Curtises. He might be around Richard <laughs> Curtis, somewhere near the bottom. <laughs> I, 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 do you like no, him more? Or well, I mean, I'm, so I'm saying, disregard everything that Richard Porritt has just said. And I don't, don't know what, about his. I don't know. Can't get you out of my head. I don't know anything. Well, I loved hypernormalization, and I think Black Lake as well. Is it Black Lake? Um, I, it's, the footage is extraordinary. Well, he's I done, don't know listen, anything he's about. A, his... He's done a great thing getting in with the BBC, hasn't he? And and getting access to all of this footage. Whether what the world needs after twelve months of isolation and a devastating pandemic is is um, six hours of Richard of uh, Adam Curtis jumping around 
Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, it is... Attempting to draw links between un- unrelated things. Well, but that's um, the whole point. I've got, I think, to say, I've got to say, I've only seen the first episode of this, so it might all come together brilliantly. But Well, the final episode, you'll be delighted to know, Steve, is a two-hour long oh, marathon. God almighty. Now, it, it, it's beautifully done. And well, it's very nicely done. But the whole point you... is that interconnected things aren't connected or are connected or... And the soundtrack is extraordinary. It goes from Apex Twin, yeah, to Lady in Red. At one point, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. But I also well, love. There you go. It's. I mean, it. To be fair, it is. You can get the same effects by going back to <laughs> 1984, smoking a load of marijuana, and having somebody talk to you while somebody plays some um, this heat demos in the next uh. room. Oh, so um, I'm not. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not doing it for me. Well, was, dear listener, why don't you? The first episode yeah. when when I, I I turned to my lovely partner and said, "Just you wait, we'll we'll be getting a mention of MK Ultra in, in a, a minute," and then <laughs> five minutes later, oh, it's this whole thing again. Dear oh dear. Well, that is very true, and I understand. There's a great parody that's been doing the rounds on social media, which is very good. I think done quite lovingly, I think. But I I am a I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. If for the soundtrack and the footage alone, um, yes, some of the other stuff that you've got to take as you take it, and I, I agree with you um, with some of your criticisms there, but I think it's beautiful TV. But I also finished watching the Watchmen HBO series on Saturday, which was great. Amazing. I loved great, that as well. Great, great thing. A- absolutely fantastic that was. And... Um, and uh, the only thing that's depressed me really uh, this week, apart from the obvious ongoing <laughs> pandemic, et cetera, Brexit fallout, um, has been Huddersfield Towns uh, just collapse towards the relegation zone, which is causing me some that concern. Is, but... That is strange. I mean, I know we've talked about this previously, or maybe we've not talked, maybe it's a long time since we have talked about this, but I'm in a weird position of my football so the football team that I support being doing extremely well at the moment I think they've just won their 17th straight game which is a a record and um, going well on all fronts and I've I have developed a, a, a <laughs> developed a disinterest um, in football yeah. which which to be fair began well before this pandemic it, it, it's it's been going going on for a, for since uh, since about Christmas of the year before last now and uh, I'm starting to wonder whether I was investing too much time in um, in football generally and I, and I've got to say I've not watched very much um, well, I think there's something in the tremendous resurgence so maybe if I start watching them again they'll they'll go like Huddersfield town maybe you there should is- stop watching Huddersfield town <laughs> There's something. I trust me. I've thought about that a few times this season. But there is. There's. I think there's something in the struggle of supporting a team that aren't very good. You know, one of one of my greatest days following Huddersfield Town was when they got to the Premier League against all the odds, and it didn't really matter that they almost immediately went straight back down. It was just like we shouldn't be here. It was. You know. It was a. And I think. I think actually, the pain that is connected with. uh, with following a fairly crap team, elevates the joy when you get those moments. And of course, you, Steve, have been up and down with Man City. Um, you know, Man City exactly. have, are absolutely in the pain rankings when it comes to uh, supporters. And they're having a good time now, of course, but you've earned it because you were right down even more lowly than Huddersfield Town not so long ago. Yes, um, exactly. Believe it yeah, or you not. Must, you should enjoy it well. You should enjoy it while you can, but I've, I've 
You're fed up of success now. Fed up of success. I think I just, I, I think I just <laughs> need, I think I just needed a rest from it, and and at the moment I, I find it hard to. I find it hard to get into when too, everything else in the world is happening. Just too much success in your life, Steve. You, there is. It's just too much. It's just too much. Well, we will get to the news very Paradigm shortly. syndrome. That's it. That's, do you remember <laughs> Dave? I think it was Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics who came up with that idea, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. um, so we will, we will cover off the news very shortly. And then uh, we've got a guest. Uh, we've got a guest who's written in this week's um, New European and uh, that guest is uh, Lawrence Dunhill, who's written about the NHS and how um, the pandemic has changed everything, obviously, for the NHS and how those changes will, you know, will, will reverberate um, beyond the pandemic. So we will, he will join us um, very shortly. And then we will send some people into the Hall of Shame um, before we love you and leave you. Um, but first, Steve, we've had an interesting um, job uh, announcement, haven't we, uh, in, in Cabinet this week? Well, there's a new member of the cabinet, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and it is after his tremendous success negotiating the Brexit trade deal, <laughs> in which nothing has gone wrong. David <laughs> Frost has joined the cabinet. Um, yeah. A uh, touch of frost. A t- it is a touch of frost in the cabinet. Yes, and um, he. Um, what's his What's his new role? I mean, he's got. He is basically in charge of our relationship with the EU after Brexit. Mm. Um, which um, is it part time role? <laughs> it's a PS exactly. Yeah, I mean, it is. A, there's a touch of a dog returning to its own vomit here, isn't there? Um, um, his um, his role sort of well, he's, he's reporting to Michael Gove, um, which is interesting given the extremely toadying uh, tweet that he put out about Michael Gove, which I will read you in a second. Um, it, it cuts across bits of the Foreign Office, doesn't it, which is, is quite strange. Mm. But it is in Cabinet anyway, and um, uh, he tweeted, I am hugely joined, uh, hugely honoured to have been appointed Minister to take forward our relationship with the EU after Brexit. In doing so, I stand on the shoulders of giants, and particularly those of Michael Gove. Um I mean, just just when you thought Oasis were responsible for the worst ever use of standing on the shoulder of giants, oh, it's extraordinary that David Frost would uh, quote Isaac Newton um, in, in his acceptance. Uh, I quite like the idea of him standing on the shoulders of of of, um, of Michael Gove, but only if they're in a sort of dung heap. Or, 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 or I was thinking maybe in. If, I don't know if David Frost is a is. I mean, because Michael Gove's quite a quite small chap actually isn't he he's not a big he's little isn't he yeah fella. he's i mean he's you know average ish but on the smaller side of average i would suggest um so he, he, i mean literally he wouldn't be standing on the shoulder of a giant if he was to stand on the shoulder of michael gove i have no idea about the height of david frost i think he is probably quite a normal sized gentleman but i have this vision of them you know trying to get into an r-rated film with a big overcoat well, you know michael, overcoat, gove, yeah. michael gove underneath i mean we'd like to see that that would make this appointment worthwhile i think if they were to if they were to come as one um, it, with michael gove's little legs at the bottom of a trench coat and david frost's head is it an admission that this is going really quite badly and we need somebody to look at it for full time? Yes, I think he probably is. Because obviously um, this was part of Michael Gove's role before, wasn't it? 
I think that I think that would be safe to assume. Um, I mean, I think we probably I think it probably does make sense that we have someone. I think it it's an it, it's an interesting appointment for me, not so much because of that, but because of the choice of person. Yes. Um I mean, obviously, the government think a lot of David Frost. I'm not sure we would probably share in that. Um, I think it's probably because he echoes their views. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a who, who exactly is, is he accountable to as a member of the cabinet? Well, he's accountable to Michael Gove, isn't he? But, mm. but, you're, but you're right, because David Frost can't, you know, he can't come and report to, to the House of Commons about how it's going because he's not a member of the House of Commons. He's, he's not elected. It's, it's very strange. Mm. Um, but yes, it is, it's all very odd. Um, and it just indicates that this is going to go on and on and on. And um, it's quite strange as well, isn't it, that according to um, Tim Walker of the New European, uh, mm. who writes the Mandrake column, Mandrake. David, Frost was, David Frost was once a very keen Remainer, wasn't he? But then I suppose, you know, Boris Johnson would keen Remainer as well. And so um, who knows? Have you seen who else has got a new job? Um, no. <laughs> Ian Duncan Smith has oh, got a new job. Right, it's right, a government of all the talents. <laughs> um, Ian Duncan Smith has got a new job. He's got a new job heading a, a post-Brexit regulatory reform group. Mm. Theresa Villiers is on this um, oh. as well, um, which is which is good, um, and it is called Tigger. <laughs> oh. It's called Tigger, yeah. The Task Force on Innovation, Growth, and Regular Regulatory Reform, right. and it essentially, Ian Duncan Smith says, um, this is definitely not going to be a body which will recommend ripping up EU rules and regulations, including workers' rights. So I think it will probably turn out to be a body that will recommend ripping up EU rules and regulations, including workers' rights. It's designed to give us a competitive advantage. But of course, you know, when you're trying to get a competitive advantage by well, by looking at EU rules and regulations that we should opt out of, mm. um, you know, how do you gain a competitive advantage if it's not stopping... Uh, things like the Working Time Directive and, and all of those kind of things. Indeed. Um, but I like the Disney. I like the Disney theme. It's good, isn't it? Take Absolutely. It. I think that's something that we should carry on through throughout government. I mean, maybe maybe we could maybe um, Mr. Johnson could do his, um, his his press conferences to the nation on on Disney Plus. Uh, that would be, <laughs> that would be good. Did you um, see? Did if, you what see? If, what if Baby Yoda was um, brought in <laughs> to um, to Tigger? That would that would make. Or if maybe Keir Starmer should hire Baby Yoda because he he needs a bit of popularity. I did think that they could call it in, instead of Tigger. They could call it um, cutting rights for useless employees like lab, labour activists, and that that would spell Cruella. <laughs> that would be great be, during PMQs. Boris Johnson just starts to slowly raise up from the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the back benches, baby Yoda is there. <laughs> that, that would be it. Um, it. Yeah, I think this. I think. I mean, I, you're a keen NFL fan as well, Steve. And and yes. I remember in one of the late season games, I think it might have even been week uh, week seventeen, the last game. Nickelodeon had a live game. Did you see they that? Did. It was Nickelodeon, brilliant. the kids' TV channel. And whenever anyone went uh, into the end zone, so scored a touchdown, 
they had all like slime and stuff coming, not actual slime, but projected onto the screen. So it looked like there was slime. That is how Disney Plus could do the press the conferences. MQs. Yeah. And they could have fake, Boris Johnson and, and, and Witty and, and the others could have uh, face filters like that poor um, uh, lawyer in the, in the States who had to give that, uh, you know, had to be in, in court as a kitten. I am not a cat, but I'm ready to proceed. I'm not a cat. It's the cat's face that is when he looks shocked. <laughs> it looks. <laughs> he looked I mean, there is bad. There is, you know, these press conferences usually have some bad news. Maybe that would cheer up the nation if Boris Johnson were to have a cat filter on his on his face. Would I would take him more seriously, frankly, if he had a cat face. He would. Um, your mate Keir Starmer has made a big speech. Yes, he has. I love this. He's, I've become. I've almost become his biggest fan, haven't I? You have, um, yeah. I would like to say I'm not a member of the Labour Party. Um, I'm not advising Keir Starmer, although, um, uh, Keir, you have got my phone number. Um, so, you know, I, yes, but he has made it. Well, he wanted it to be a big speech. I'm not entirely sure how big a splash it will, it will actually make. But, um, yeah, this was, uh, this is Keir's speech on the economy. And I thought it was actually uh, quite interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, I think he's timed it about right because uh, the government is very keen on next week, sort of next week and a half being the plan for us moving forward as we move out of lockdown. So obviously on on Monday, and we'll get to this, uh, the Prime Minister will lay out this roadmap, awful term, but roadmap to um, to, uh, unlocking a little bit. And then, of course, a week a week on Wednesday, we've got the budget, which will be blockbuster. So I think they, I think that's why he's timed it now, and he's yeah. got, you know, he's got a, got a few demands in there. I think probably ones that, that I mean, the I'm not sure about the. So he, he mentioned the weekly twenty pound increase to universal credits, um, which is scheduled to end at the uh, end of March. I think it is. Um, yes, it is end of March. And uh, business rates, uh, holiday and, and VAT cut, uh, which has been offered. So VAT cut for, for hospitality firms, basically, who've been so badly hit leisure and hospitality firms during this lockdown, uh, for obvious reasons, is, is now 5% rather than 20%. Um, and um, I, I think those are ones, w- w- certainly the, the VAT cut, which we probably will see in the budget. So I think there's a few, uh, it's almost like free hits there for him. But really, this is about more than uh, Keir Starmer just demanding things from the government. This is um, much more important internally for Labour, really, because this is this is Keir Starmer setting out some longer-term economic policy for Labour. And, of course, there's been, there has been um, criticism of him from within the party that he hasn't really had much of that. Now, I would say that he's very early into what is going to be a full term parliament and he perhaps doesn't doesn't need it but i you know but that we now see just little bits from this how he's talking about um the state has had a a huge role to play um in the past 12 months and quite rightly and how we move forward alongside business because i think last week it was wasn't it we spoke about how um uh, uh, Labour needs to get business on side, needs to woo them. And I think Keir Starmer c- could possibly do that. Um, but he also doesn't want to completely turn his back on on a larger state than the than the Tories obviously would want. Do you think... I, I think that sits somewhere sort of between 
perhaps not as far. I think Tony Blair, actually, if you were to kneel him down, would have... Which many people would like to see. <laughs> Indeed. Um, would, would have probably gone for a smaller state than it sounds like Keir Starmer wants. But is that just a reflection of the time, do you think? Uh, I think it. I, th- I think it probably is a, a reflection of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, the state is going to have to be heavily involved in our lives. I mean, he seems um, to be for the I mean, next he decade. He seems to be calling for you know whatever whatever um, Sunak does in the budget, but hyper, didn't he? I didn't really. I didn't really. I mean, he talked about these bonds, didn't he? Um, mm. and, and sort of rebuilding bonds, and the the the, the speech is slogan was secure protect rebuild i don't know whether that is a labor slogan now it sounds like a um it sounds like uh the sort of some end of world uh sort of uh, what do they call those people who dig holes in their garden in america yeah, survivalist survivalist yeah. it sounds like a survivalist protect it sounds like he's going into <laughs> business with max and paddy as some kind of um, <laughs> security force uh set up starmer's Get back, your Tories. <laughs> security, secure, protect, rebuild. Um, so, um, so yeah, so three-word slogan there. Um, but it it did sort of seem that you know whatever they want to do, we want to do even oh. more of it. I think that um, that's not bad positioning though for for an opposition, um, because you want to be able to say we said that. Well done, but we want more of it as well. You know, I think that there's a little, there's a little bit of, there's, it is knowing. You know, there is, it, this is not as daft a um, regime as we've had in the past from Labour, and I think no, definitely, not. and I think sometimes, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to be in opposition right now, as we touched on last week, and I think that that is um, yes, or as, you, or as you and Jasper touched on last week, of course, um, <laughs> with Nick Cohen. Um, but um, but I think this speech. I don't think the speech was blockbuster. I don't think it was the best speech ever written for for Keir Starmer. But I think it. I think it's a step in the right direction for Labour internally. Um, it won't get the kind of pickup that they want in the media um, because there's tons of other stuff going on. Um, yeah, I do that, think the media think they have to give him a, a decent shake though, because yeah. clearly he's, he's you know he's not. He's not been the most visible for obvious reasons over the and, and the only thing that we've seen him, you know, it's it's smart, isn't it? In that um, we talked about last week about that poll saying, well, all he ever does is moan. So it's smart to to put something out there, even if the, there's yeah. not much flesh on the bones. It's also smart to, you know, I've no doubt that in the budget, Sunak is going to do quite a lot of talking about um, how he's going to spend. Uh, the money that's already been spent and the money that will be spent. Um, but Starmer is positioning himself against any sort of, you know, reintroduction of austerity. And that doesn't, you know, there won't be a swinging reintroduction of austerity, although that would be suicidal. But, you know, the, the, the Tories will want this to, the bill to come in at some point and for us to start paying it. Um, so I'm, I'm expecting that there will be that, and he's, he's quite sensibly setting himself up in opposition to that. No, there wasn't no mention of, or not much mention of Brexit in this. No, um, which uh, you know we talked about last week, didn't we, with Nick Cohen? Um, and um, you know, I, again, I just wonder whether this is. Well, I know why he's doing it, and I'm sure it's working in the in the, the red wall and places like that. I wonder whether it's going to 
there's it's going to cause a um, problems for Labour on May the 6th when obviously there's a lot of local elections and what it's going to mean for enthusiasm for Labour among uh, Remain voters in places like Scotland um, where they need all the votes they can get. I mean, you know, you would have thought that, that Sadiq Khan is, is fairly safe, but, um, but London, any sort of metropolitan seats that are going as well. It's interesting, isn't it? I, it is, yeah. It's a, a real sort of tightrope. Um, shall we talk about the um, the big news of the week, which is the sort of the, the countdown to lockdown? And yeah, there is a there is a clock ticking, isn't there? In in everyone in the collective mind of the nation, tick tock, yeah. tick tock. And, and we, uh... we, were, we were planning the we were, when we were planning sort of just before this time last week, we were planning the next print edition of the New European. So the one that is 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 in your hands now, which is and it's a beauty. It's a beauty. It's oh, it's really good. It's got some great writing in it, including uh, including by Lawrence, who we will talk to very shortly. Um, but um, but it's got it's got uh, Vladimir Putin on the front. Anyway, but we were planning this edition, and we sort of went well. You know, the next edition after that, the one that we are just starting work on now. Um, as we record this, will obviously all, all be about the, the paths out of lockdown because over the you know the weekend it will get lots and lots of talk about the paths out of lockdown and all of this kind of stuff. And um, that happened a week earlier, so we kind of know what he's going to announce. And you know, you're you're apart from doing this, your other job is 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 you know as the business editor of a, uh, a local newspaper group. So. You're dealing with local businesses all the time. Mm. What are, what are they saying about the stuff that is being likely to come out on Monday, the twenty second of February? Well, we did a, we did a really um, sort of we, we spent about two weeks actually speaking uh, in depth to pretty much every every sector um, that's important. We're based out here in the east of England, so there's lots of lots of leisure, lots of tourism, um, all that kind of thing, and. And do you know what? It, it was fascinating because I I thought that we'd probably get in the lockdown now, you know, and and there was a little bit of that. But actually, the overriding sense was we'd rather we locked down slower and made sure that this was the last one. What really, really hurt them, and this is especially true for pubs are a great example to use, especially true for them. You know, they they spent a fortune getting protocols in place to be able to reopen in some way, shape or form in the, at the end of summer um, and into the autumn, you know, outdoor pods, marquees, plastic things on the bar and, you know, extra staff some of them had to take on to make sure that there was some crowd control if they needed it, you know, queues outside, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were locked down, you know, they were locked down again and um, it just didn't give them a chance to try and claw back that extra um, money that they'd spent and of course they weren't getting the same people in because the people simply didn't want to they felt perhaps a little bit afraid of being in inside in pubs but also they, everyone had to be sat down so there they just wasn't the opportunity to to do it and so I think really everyone just wants would prefer it to be longer but right that mm. was what that is the overriding feeling that we got from talking to pretty much every sector let's make sure this is the last one um, and that kind of sounds like what's coming out of number 10 as well, doesn't it? Um, you know, the, there are 
uh, backbench, there is backbench pressure to to unlock quicker. Some would say, and some have said, that the data is proving that we should be unlocking quicker. I think people are nervous. Um, I mean, business owners are nervous, and um, I think we're still a long way off anything like normal. And there's some excellent data out today. Well, excellent. It's not doesn't make good reading, but it's it's interesting data, saying that if pubs are allowed to open but only serve outside, only sixty percent of those pubs will actually bother opening having had their fingers burned last time. Um, so I think we're a long way from uh, long way from normal. Um, a lot of people, I think, you know, I think businesses also support schools being the first back. And I think that the sensible thing to do will be to see how that goes, really. And that does seem to be what what we're sort of hearing from little leaks and hints and, and things. Um, but I don't know what you think, Steve. I don't know if you would echo that, a longer lockdown to make sure it's the last. Uh, I think it's um, I think it's sensible. Um, I do hear what the uh, I do hear what the hospitality industry in particular is saying, and there is an Adam Curtisy bit of me um, <laughs> which thinks that maybe these leaks are are be are maybe the, the the leak of this this stuff which is much stricter than had previously been hinted. So, you know, at the start of at the start of these leaks, we we sort of were told that pubs would reopen on April the 1st, weren't we? And now, you know, it looks like pubs might be allowed to to open to serve food later in April, serve food and drink later in April, but only if they've got a big outside bit. Mm. Um, uh, and but part of me wonders whether these strict um, measures are, are have been leaked now to see to test the water to see what the yeah. reaction is, um, and the reaction from the Daily Mail certainly is that, that they are too harsh. Um, now take the brakes off Boris was their front page on Thursday. I would like to see Boris Johnson take the brakes off, but only while cycling into <laughs> uh, unpleasant rather than in while well, he's in charge of lockdown. Um, Steve Baker from the ERG um, has been on patrol, hasn't he? Said um, uh, he says uh, the data is looking so good that Britain needs to reopen earlier. Graham Brady, you know the, the real, as we've said many times, the real opposition, and this is nothing to do with Jeremy Corbyn or, or Keir Starmer, but the, the most vocal opposition. Um, and the opposition that the Tories actually listen to is is the opposition from their own backbenches, isn't it? And Graham Brady, who's chairman of the 1922, who um, obviously um, you know was he was the chairman of the 1922 when the, the, the failed coup against May happened, and then he had to pretend that he loved Theresa May, um, and then obviously the real coup against Theresa May happened, and he was delighted and, and said that he loved Boris all along. He said the presumption should be that people get back control of their own lives and we move from a world of arbitrary regulation to one where we're able to take responsibility for ourselves and each other. And I, mm. I, I wonder whether, you know, in between now and Monday the 22nd, um, these um, these strict regulations will get a little bit more lax as a result of, of stuff, um, uh, pressure from tabloid newspapers, uh, pressure from the Daily Telegraph, pressure from the Daily Mail, and pressure from um, 
anti-lockdown backbenchers. Mm. I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's probably it's 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 depressing, but it's probably it is, you know, I think it's it's better, isn't it? It's better not to have to chop and change and cause all that damage. The idea that there will be no, you won't be able to go to the cinema, the theatre. Uh, or a concert until September at the earliest is, is for me truly depressing. It really is, yeah, it really is. I mean, but it, I think, you know, business leaders are kind of, you know, I've said this a million times, but what they want more than anything else is some kind of certainty um, because then they can plan. And, the, and they've been saying this now since before we ever even knew what coronavirus was because they had four years of uncertainty from the moment the country voted to leave the EU up until well it continues doesn't it let's be let's be blunt about it that uncertainty continues add into that the uncertainty of lockdown and I've got some sympathy with the government um you know it's difficult to plan for uh new variants etc cetera, etc cetera. it is difficult but what I think they would prefer is to at least know that the government is going to go it's going to be slow but we're going to get it right rather than them chopping and changing and you know a lot of them don't even want the tiers you know a lot of people are saying the regional tiers were complicated it 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 chopped the whole country no you know it was it and it was pretty fiendishly complicated um at times it was getting that way um i think they want simplicity and they want some kind of certainty they can't they understand that they can't have absolute certainty that by june it'll be back like it was and we will have all forgotten about it they know that they're not daft but at least they know that it's it's going to be very gradual very slow that is what i think they want i mean they they would probably go oh yeah if boris johnson on monday says right everything back to normal tomorrow they'd probably go whoopie do, but they were, the fear and the uncertainty of having to lock down again which is what would happen of course if we did that would perhaps mean like a lot of those pubs that they wouldn't even bother, they would wait. So it's that certainty that they need. Um, and I think that is what um, they would all um, uh, uh, urge the, the, the government to, to try and offer um, next week. Uh, yes. I, I mean, even a... around schools, because even schools yes. going back, it's got a massive impact on, on employment because you've got, you've got staff with kids at home, which must be awful. It must be, absolutely impossible to try and do a day's work with with children there as well um and and also kids going to school is as knock-on impact for the rest of the economy you know if you're a if you're a, a coffee shop on a you know on the route yeah. for a school run then that makes a big difference you know and um i mean i think probably we're probably going to see primary schools aren't we and then maybe staggered high schools a couple of weeks after but um just i think I mean, that's it. It's difficult to ask for, but certainty, I think. It is, yeah. I was interested to see um, William Lees Jones, who is the chairman of uh, J.W. Lees, which is a, it's a, the first pint of beer I ever had was, was uh, uh, J.W. Lees. They were a brewery in Oldham. Um, and um, they're, they're, you know, and, and still going, um, still independent. They've got they've got um, twelve hundred staff. And he said, um, he said, this is an industry that's on its knees. Ministers just don't understand. Uh, after the end of March, there will be a huge number of businesses that fail. Presumably, that is um, um, 
you know, when um, some furlough stuff is uh, withdrawn. Yeah, and um, potentially some other bits and bobs as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he said he's we've invested in the pubs to keep them safe. The vaccine will make a massive difference. Uh, this was the thing that he said that was interesting. If pubs are not open, then people will meet up illegally. Mm. And um, and I, I wonder well, I wonder whether that is true. <laughs> Although um, the bloke who the bloke who was um, who'd set up a pub in a was it in a container? In the COVID arms. The COVID arms, or was it? Or was yeah? There was somewhere in Birmingham, wasn't yeah, there? Maybe yeah. that was Dudley. Um, I was looking on the, you know, um, I, I, the, the footage. If you've not seen it, the news footage of police breaking into this illegal pub called the which had a sign on the wall that said the COVID arms. <laughs> the first thing you hear is somebody going, "Oh no." Like he was, he was absolutely loving being in the COVID arms, drinking in the dark with a bunch of other um, well, well, we Myself and a couple of friends of this podcast did actually um, do something similar, but not illegal, uh, last okay. summer, where we we would meet in what was known as the Porrit Arms, oh, okay. um, and and have a have a few beers that we would buy from the supermarket. Um, but it was all it was all perfectly we were all allowed to do that at the time. It's just the pubs weren't open, but it was just by the by the riverside. It was very pleasant. You're all more than welcome when um when lockdown allows uh, to come and join me in the Porrit Arms. Well, that sounds uh, what, a, what, <laughs> what an what invite. An, what an offer it is. <laughs> drinking drink a few cans drinking by the riverbank. What could be? Well, it was very it was a lo- it was quite a nice summer last year, wasn't it? It and was I, a lovely. I got a lovely. A, I got a tan and everything. It was a lovely summer, and I'm, you know, I, I would imagine that the scenes that we all saw, once the, once especially once they'd allowed places to sell takeaway beer, you know, if that once that comes in, um, but especially, um, you know, uh, especially if it's nice over Easter, I think you you will see some um, larger groups, won't you, gathering in uh, public places again? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, young people, are young people, and they're going to do it, and I, I, even that. Even the pictures of the raves, I did have some sympathy with. Imagine if you're 18 and you're not allowed to go out. I mean... Well, there's a good reason why you're not allowed I to know, go. I know. I understand all that. I'm not saying they should do it, but I do have some sympathy with them. And everyone loves a rave. Well, they had a VIP room, which is... Which <laughs> in their, uh, yeah, they had a VIP room, didn't they, in their illegal rave. Um, I've got... Con- I've, I've made a list. Oh. Um, I've made a list here of... of Five Curtises that were better than that. Right, go on then, go on then. Uh, King Curtis. Right, okay. Who was a saxophonist. Uh, he played on a lot of sort of rock and roll, early rock and roll records. Is he this in on, order of your favourite This Curtis? is in reverse order. Reverse order. So number five, Pop Pickers. His most famous track is called Memphis Soul Stew, which is a great, a great song. He played on... Um, John Lennon's Imagine album. He's the, playing the, the saxophone on It's So Hard, which is a really good track. Uh, he plays the saxophone on Respect by Aretha Franklin. Uh, number four, Curtis Hansen. He directed uh, a lot. He's of one of the Hansen brothers, isn't he? Elected, he directed a lot of good films. I'm ignoring that, including <laughs> Wonder Boys and the the fantastic LA Confidential. Oh yeah, that's good. Um, which I think we've said on this podcast before. Uh, somebody who I know when this was when when LA Confidential first came out, uh, somebody who I know who was involved in um, in the journalism business, 
um, said um, we we I, I, he was going to need a review of this new film that was coming out. Uh, he assumed it was a French film, so he said, oh, "We need a review of La Confidencial," um, <laughs> which has been the, the cause of much hilarity down the years. Number three in the list of great Curtises is um, Curtis Martin, who played for the New York Jets. Great distinction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number two is obviously Ian Curtis. Ian of, Curtis, of absolutely. Division. Well, and that's a shock. So he's he's number two. And number one, the great Curtis Mayfield. Ah, Curtis Mayfield. One of the, one of the you know, I mean, Ian Curtis, two great albums and um, uh, what a legacy. But Curtis Mayfield. Incredible. What's the Edge's real name? The Edge's real name. Adam. Oh, what is his real name? It's Adam something, isn't it? I think it is. Is it Adam Curtis? No. I don't think it can't be. Adam oh, conspiracy, that would be. <laughs> Adam Curtis has got a very good BBC voice. I can't believe that it is the Irishman. Um... David Evans is the Edge. So who's the other guy? Who? Right, members of U2. Let me Google this now, because there is a Curtis in Larry U2. Larry Mullen Jr. is in him. Right. Bono. Whose real name is what's Bono's real name? Oh, Adam Clayton. Adam Clayton, yeah. Yeah, no, he's the he... one who used to go out with. Um, he's the one who used to go out with Naomi Campbell, isn't he? Oh. And uh, didn't his penis appear on the cover oh. of the Actung Baby album? <laughs> Did it really? Which I think is something that none of us had asked for. Much like the Actung Baby album. <laughs> much <laughs> like pretty much any album by it's oh, that one that by... came free on your iPod. Oh god, yeah. Well, I didn't want I, I think I lobbed my iPod out of the out of the room when that happened. That was extra that was extraordinary hubris from you too, right? An extraordinary Apple. hubris. <laughs> They'll all love this um album. Uh so have you um, two ever had a good art? I mean, I, the early stuff was pretty good, wasn't it? Well, it was, uh, I think 11 o'clock TikTok was good. I will follow. That was passable. Uh, I, I mean, then they, just, I, then they just descended into mighty pomp, didn't they? I remember as a kid being very pleased that the fly knocked um, Brian Adams off number one. Yes. Um, because everyone was so bored after 16 weeks of uh, Brian Adams being number one. And the charts in those days were were one of my obsessions. Um, so I, I was pleased about that, but I don't. But I didn't. I, I wasn't really a fan of the. I went to the Glastonbury that year when um, Bono hurt his back and couldn't couldn't perform, and uh, and that was that was probably the best thing that happened at Glastonbury that year. <laughs> Instead, we had the Gorillas, um, which oh, I have well, to say I'm no I'm no I'm no massive fan of the Gorillas either. But they were they were probably better than than you two. Um, well, hey, listen. I think we've got a guest. We have. It's Lawrence Dunhill, uh, who is in the uh, this week's New European, uh, and he's written about the uh, the NHS. Lawrence, are you are you there? Our beloved NHS, of course. Our beloved NHS. He's not there. No, he's not there. <laughs> well, just give us a quick overview, uh, Steve, as we have exactly the same problem as we did have last week. I will just. Um, do, I'll do it in Lawrence's voice. Shall I? Go on. Uh, well, I can't. Oh, here he is. Lawrence, are you there? Hello. Hi. He uh, is here. There we go. For, for a moment there, I thought I was going to have to go through your piece word, word for word, but, <laughs> but, but luckily, luckily not. Yeah, before you wouldn't want we, that. Before we get started, um, why, don't you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and, and, and tell people um, 
what you know why you have chosen this to, to to write about in the new european this week sure so so would this be a kind of intro on the pod on the podcast we're all we're live on it now it's all right okay <laughs> Um, so m- my name is Lawrence Dunhill. I'm a bureau chief at the Health Service Journal and uh, have obviously spent the last year um, writing a lot about the NHS's response to coronavirus. Um, in, in the next year, hopefully, the, the, the kind of immediate coronavirus news is going to start receding um, and um, we're going to start reporting much more on the the normal sort of um, NHS news that we look at, um, albeit that, that it's, it will be a very different picture to a year ago uh, because of the the, the the massive impact that the pandemic has had mm. on on lots of the, the the kind of underlying problems that the NHS faced. And you're and you're saying that. Um... You're sort of saying that although um, the NHS came into this with numerous problems and um, those problems were a bit exacerbated naturally by the the pandemic and new uh, issues have emerged that um, that the kind of you know that this may be a, a that some positive may come out of all of this misery. Um, it could help forge consensus in key areas and it could help us, uh, it's uncovered fragilities that um, that we, we, we now have to deal with on an urgent basis. Um, do you want to sort of talk about whether, what those key areas of weakness, underlying weakness were, the, the sort of the mm. squeeze budgets and the workforce shortages and stuff like that? Sure. So, yeah, I, so I kind of broke it down into four, four, well, five main challenges that the NHS was facing before, which, which have now just, just got even bigger. And so, so the kind of primary one, as always, is, is the, the NHS is, is its staff, really, and, and its workforce um, have, have, have had a, a pretty momentous year and, and have been absolutely stretched to 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 the to the bounds of their of their capabilities as, as we as we all know um and the, the the problem before coronavirus really was that the they were they were already kind of very often operating uh, very close to their full capacity and and that's why we often had um lots of lots of news stories in the winter of, of long queues at A&E departments and stuff, uh, because when there were kind of big peaks in demand, the NHS would always struggle. Um, and that's largely because there, there had been, the, for the last decade really, that the, there's been a, the, the, the byword for NHS management has been efficiency. Mm. Um, and so, the, you didn't want to have kind of slack in the system where yes. you, you had staff that weren't working very hard all the time because that was uh, a waste of money uh, and um, and all, all hospitals had very kind of strict um, financial targets to hit and so ev- everyone was kind of operating at, uh, close to full capacity and, and then 
kind of beyond full capacity in in the peak demand and, and that's what we've really seen during coronavirus is yes although they have managed to to cope with the pressures they've only been able to do that because they've stood down all the routine stuff that they normally do which has obviously um, led to huge backlogs hasn't it yes and so and so that's the second that's yeah. the kind of second big uh big issue which again was already a problem before uh, this time last year um because the the waiting list for the waiting list backlogs for diagnostics and routine treatments had had really increased uh, quite dramatically over the last 10 years um but those increases are kind of um, look suddenly look very small compared to what's happened in the last year. Um, so, so those waiting for a diagnostic test, for example, um, the, the the numbers that are already waiting beyond the standard six week target has gone from forty six thousand this time last year to three hundred thousand. Yeah. Um, and the the number already waiting more than eighteen weeks for their for their treatment, um, which might be a kind of hip or knee operation or something like that, uh, has gone from 730,000 this time last year to 1.4 million. Um, and those waiting over a year has gone as has, has really shot up from 1,600 to 223,000. Wow. I mean, those are, those are, are, are I mean, those numbers are, are just bewildering. Um, and, and, when we talk about the NHS operating at kind of full capacity there and people, you know, people, they're not, or the, the people who are running the, or running the money into the NHS, not wanting people to, to not, not wanting people to not be working at full capacity, I guess. But that still means that even before the pandemic, what was a, a normal NHS shift like? What, how many hours do, do, nurses in the nhs work and, and doctors within the, the nhs so a, a kind of typical shift would be uh, is often a 12-hour shift right. um but and and then you work three days um a, a bit like other parts of the public se sector like that like firemen do they work three days and then four days off yeah. um but but it's it's very common for um, a nurse say to to work beyond that 12 hours for it to go to 13 14 hours and and then of course, you know where, where um, an office worker, an average office worker, say you know works a twelve-hour, uh, an eight-hour day, um, you know it, they're not kind of working flat out for that for that eight hours. It would be very difficult. Mm. Um, you, you, you're kind of you, you're doing bits here and there, um, and whereas in the NHS particularly during winter, these 12 hour shifts really are flat out and, and, and extremely stressful. Uh, and they're kind of quite high pressure situations because it's, there's obviously, you know, people's health at stake. And presumably that is, that those shifts have only got longer during this pandemic um, as people try and, uh, as people try and, um, you know, do whatever they can. Um, do you think that, at the end of this, or, or when this is more contained than it that it is now, that, that we're that we're going to see added problems. Then we're going to see exhausted people. You know, already we've seen tragically we've seen doctors and nurses dying during the pandemic. We've obviously we've seen there are 
doctors and nurses and, and people who work in, in hospitals and GPs who, who are have been ill with coronavirus. Do you think that the, the it is, are more problems going to be added on with people leaving the service just out of sheer exhaustion? I, th- I think we may get a bit of that, particularly it, it will be a mixed picture because um, it, it, it sort of depends what part of the hospital you work in. And so if, if, you, if you've been, if you work in critical care, for example, or, or have been helping in critical care, that, that's been the, re- the really pressured uh, part of the hospital. And and so, it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see some of the some of those clinicians and nurses um, want to wanting to leave the service because they, you know, they, they need a break. On the other hand, I think uh, a kind of sense of camaraderie is, is probably built up. And um, and so people may now even be even more dedicated to, to kind of help staying in the service and helping the NHS. So it's, it's, it's hard to tell. But but the I think one certainty is that those staff really are going to need a, a break. Um, because on top of all the demand that we've also had lots of staff off sick as well with um, with the virus or having to self-isolate over the last year which is which has just stretched the staffing staffing levels even even more thinly Um, and and there are there's going to be some really difficult decisions having to be made um, within the NHS about to, to what extent you and, and how long you you can give those staff a break before you you say to them right we, we really need you back now because we need to start getting through this backlog. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in there, Lawrence, because you touched on something that that really fascinated me. I've got my mum was a nurse. I've got family members who work in the NHS. And do you think that we all? I mean, this country loves its NHS. I think that's fair to fair to say that um, it, it, it always pulls well, and spending on it is always uh, is always a, a plus for politicians. But um, do you, do you almost think that the, the the regard that nurses especially are held in and have uh, uh, on the back of the last year might even see us in a few years down the line seeing a, a sort of boost of of applicants of people who want to be you know, who maybe, uh, you know, want to be involved in working um, in frontline care be- because of the struggle that they've seen, because of the good work and because they understand how important the service has, has been and continues to be. I mean, do you think that there might be some kind of silver lining in the in the next few years with regards to recruitment? Yeah, that I mean, that, that does seem like a kind of reasonable... Um reasonable thing to thing to say uh, and I, I think it was I heard something on the radio this morning um, saying that students now were, were choosing uh, safer careers because they were worried about the state of the economy so so careers like um, being a doctor or a nurse um, and uh, and you know that the publicity and the profile of the NHS is is now uh, huge and it has a, it, the brand is so strong um, that there, there is there is undoubtedly an opportunity there to to capitalize on that and to and to really boost recruitment um, and hopefully that that could be a kind of that could offset the um, the uh, challenge of, of brexit and mm. and um, and uh, the, the kind of downward pressure on international recruits that that might might be coming in as a result of that. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do, I, I do find that that fascinating that um, that, that that people, um, you know, maybe maybe drawn towards it. But I guess it does make some sense with regards to safer careers. Do you, do you think that one of the uh, another vital element of of perhaps um, riding that wave with regards to uh, the goodwill it is, however, to push up those low those lower wages for for entry level nurses, etc. I mean, politically, surely that would be that would be a home run, wouldn't it? You think so? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, sh- surely the, there are going to have to be some some pay increases. That the, the unions are certainly going to have a very strong. Uh, kind of bargaining position aren't they yeah um but uh, not just for the not just for the nhs but also for um the social care sector uh west west staff are very low pay uh, have very low pay um and the terms and conditions aren't nearly as good as the nhs mm. um and and that sector you know arguably should 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 get more attention now and yeah. and and certainly needs the staff more than more even more than the nhs does is there any other positives on the back of the pandemic for the nhs because um i mean you know i work in a newsroom have done all my life and um not particularly newspapers not particularly good at dealing with change we're only still getting to grips with the internet um and uh you know the um but we, we'd set aside a year a year um to get our guys confidently using teams you know like the if, if you don't know what teams are listeners it's similar to zoom but um sort of video conferencing and and of course when we all had to leave the office we had to master it in about an hour and i think probably similar things with virtual consultations and things for gps i mean do you think that there's been uh, there has been a positive in that that might have taken a lot longer um had that you know had that had the pandemic not hit you know people simply had to do it I think yes, that that is that is the kind of feedback that, that we're getting from a lot of staff. So certainly in primary care, um, G, so GP appointments and also outpatient appointments, uh, th- there was already a push to try and do more of these through um, through video consultations. Mm. Um, but it was extremely slow, uh, like anything in the NHS. Um, but as, as you say, in the in the last year, that they've just had to do it, and it, and 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 there has been an overwhelming shift to um, to video and um, telephone consultations now, mm. and hopefully that a lot of that will stick, and and will mean you can you can you can get through. Um, consultations much more quickly and more efficiently than you did before. And I guess the the patient as well will see that it works for them. You know, they're not as <clears throat> because they've had to do it and it's worked. Hopefully, I'm sure it has for the vast majority. Of them. They, they're more confident in using it in using it down the line. Well, well, obviously, we got a, we got a, a fairly new conservative government. There's always um, there's always a, a little bit of fear within the NHS when the conservatives are in are in power, of course, and um, but but does that remain? Because there was a lot of um, a lot of talk about spending on the NHS from from Boris Johnson. Uh, Forty new hospitals um, was the kind of disputed figure um, that he you know is taking the moving the pandemic to one side and trying to forget that that ever happened. Was there a slight? Was there some hope perhaps that this administration maybe would be perhaps good for the NHS? And and does that still remain or, or have they lost that? 
There, yeah, there, there certainly was, or or at least not bad for mm. the NHS, and in in a, in a way that that has been the case um, for the last ten years, because I think the Conservative Party has has understood that uh, if if they um, showed a lot of love to the NHS, um, then that would take away Labour's main line of attack. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, over the last 10 years, although its budgets have been squeezed, um, it, it was still um, one of the only protected departments in government from, from budget cuts. Um, and And Boris Johnson seems to have so it seems to kind of understand this idea even more than 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 Theresa May and 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 Cameron, um, because he he he's talking about these forty new hospitals and a, and a and a big increase in capital funding and he he, he likes to he, he's a positive guy I suppose and likes to do to to build new things which mm. which will work in the NHS's favour I think um, because it, the, the capital budget is is something that's been neglected. Um, and you know, by setting out that target, yeah, you can quibble about the numbers, but by setting out that target, they're going to have to do a lot. Yeah, which guess, will be good. I guess the I guess the fear is now for anything, not just for the NHS, but for any for any big spending projects, for any infrastructure, anything that the government has got a ready made excuse why they can't do it anymore, haven't they? That is the fear. Um, but um, let's hope that the the pressure. Uh, the pressure stays on. Lawrence, it's been an absolute joy to have you on the show. Thank you Absolutely. very much for coming on. It's, re- I think, with, with stuff like this, you know, me and me and Steve can wang on about the NHS, but we've got no real insight. So it's good to get an expert on and, and tell us. I mean, some of those figures are, are frightening, but we've all got our fingers crossed um, for all the doctors and nurses and the other people as well. Lots of people who aren't doctors and nurses who are on the front line from, uh, you know, from the from the porters to the receptionist staff, they're all doing a fantastic, fantastic job. And also um, in social care, which you know, I know we've, we've not really, I mean, that's that, that maybe we can, we can pick up on that another day, but, um, but that's, you know, that is clearly something that was, I mean, that, that was already under pressure again, wasn't it? Like the NHS. And Indeed, I guess those yeah. pressures are going to increase even more on the back of the pandemic, aren't they? Indeed. Yeah. yeah a, no, a pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, Lawrence Dunhill. You can read uh, his article in this week's uh, New European print edition, which is, of course, on sale now. Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. All right. No problems. Thanks. Good to chat. All right, Steve, shall we take a little break and then we can uh, we can have a peek into the Hall of Shame? Welcome back, Steve. It is time for you to send some people into the Hall of Shame. The Hall of Shame. The Hall it's of portals shame. open once more. <laughs> um, I've been quite worried about Nigel Farage recently. Um, he looks he, rough, doesn't he? I got a newsletter. Uh, I, I subscribed to his his um, his money is what's it called? Finance and freedom. Fortune Funny money. Funny money with Nigel with Farage. Nigel Farage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I subscribed to his his financial newsletter as i said and the other day that the title of one of them was uh its title was mother nature skynet and big brother have formed an alliance to monitor you and i thought is that is he all right and then sounds I like the, adam curtis <laughs> indeed it is yeah if it's twin did, plane in the background <laughs> but what they weren't aware of was that mother nature skynet and big brother had formed an alliance to monitor us all 
Um, and then I saw this video that he'd made, and it's in a really bleak. Have you seen it? It's in a very bleak, yeah. <laughs> sort of semi-furnished room. It's got nothing on the walls of this room. It's a total kind of divorced dad room, isn't it? And, um, <laughs> There's a sort of mustard armchair from the 1970s. There's a media unit with a TV on it, with a stand on it. There's an MDF shelf where he's, you know, he's put down his three books or whatever, and he's just to fill them, and he's just put them down on the side. He's not even bothered to prop them up. Uh, it looks like he actually might be in a safe house. Um, so maybe there's something that we, we don't know. Um, and it looks sort of like somewhere where you would put somebody who used to be important and useful to big politicians, but now isn't important or useful anymore and there's no need to bother with him. Anyway, um, in this, this safe house that he's in, he, he, he put out a video um, in which he calls for the UK to scrap the EU Human Rights Act. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, and there's a problem with that, isn't there? As everyone there is. listening to this will know, in uh, there is no EU Human Rights Act. It's got nothing to do with the EU. It's to do with um, it is to do with um, the the European Convention of Human Rights, which has got nothing to do with the EU. It was something that was drafted in 1950. Um, by British lawyers and supported by Winston Churchill, and it was mm. introduced in 1953. And then he rambled on about asylum seekers, which again has got nothing to do with the uh, EU Human Rights Act, which doesn't exist, and in fact is to do with international law. And then I stopped feeling sorry for him because he's just a silly um, nicotine stained frog after all. Um, <laughs> Frederick Forsyth is in the Hall of Shame. Uh. He is. Um, as people will know, um, the author of some good books in the 1970s, uh, and now um, he writes a column in the Daily Express. Uh, and his column this week is about how we've all got it terribly wrong about um, lockdown. He said, our government now is an out-of-control bureaucracy inventing more containments to freedom than East Germany ever had. I'm not sure about that, mate. Uh, but solving nothing. Boris Johnson, 12 months ago, chose the most extreme course of them all. Impose massive lockdown or we would suffer 500,000 dead. All bunkum, but he believed it. Uh, he says, since then, brilliant minds who were right have been sidelined or, sil- or demonised. Mediocrities elevated to supremacy. Uh, mediocrities who are the brains behind the network of rules that make no sense and do not work. He's a bit Adam Curtis as well, isn't he? (laughs) Uh, And now they're so embedded that nobody dares gainsay them. He says, 10 years ago, my eldest son, Stuart, emigrated to Sweden to join his Swedish wife. He and his wife still live in a free and prospering society with fewer deaths per million than we do. Mm. Um, And that bit is interesting, isn't it? Because... Um, Sweden's death rate from COVID is currently 122 per 100,000. That is much less than ours, uh, which is 177 per 100,000. But it is three times higher Mm. than Denmark, which is next door, and 11 times higher than Norway, which is not far off. Um, And then he's, you know, he says that, um, that Britain should be run like, Sweden ran, which obviously, you know, didn't there was there was not a lockdown in Sweden. Well, that's fine, but you know, we've got this horrendous death rate. Uh, 
we've got a population density of 207, uh, 275 people per square mile. In mm. Sweden, the population density is 23 people by, per square mile. Ours is more than 10 times higher. So what, do you, what does uh, Frederick Forsyth think that might have done to the death rates? You know, it's certainly, how, how many, what's our, what's our total deaths now? You know, it's, 120, it's over. It, it's heading towards 140,000. I think you know we'll probably see tragically by the end of February. And you know, had we locked, had we not locked down in the manner that Sweden did, with a population density that's over 10 times what it is in Sweden, then we might have got near to that 500,000 figure that Frederick Forsyth talks about. Um, but the most the reason that I've included it in all of this is that Sweden is now, having done what it's done, is about to go into a national lockdown. Yeah. Uh, well, we are, you know, about to start coming out of a national lockdown. The Swedes who have already, you know, you already they've already shut bars and restaurants after 6pm. And now the government is going to close down shopping centres and gyms and restaurants. Um, and uh, there will be new restrictions on things like museums and zoos. Um, so, um, so Frederick Forsyth, I, th I think, has, has just got it badly wrong. And in Frederick Forsyth, the film of Frederick Forsyth's book, The Day of the Jackal, the, the assassin who tried to take out Charles de Gaulle, was um, was played by um, Edward Fox, and whose uh, whose nephew happens to be Lawrence <laughs> Fox. Yes. who is going into the Hall of Shame uh, for this tweet. Um, it might have escaped you, but the other day, uh, Rush Limbaugh, who was the sort of the godfather of right-wing talk radio in America, mm. uh, he died at the age of 70 from lung cancer. And Lawrence Fox has tweeted, thank you, Rush Limbaugh, for carrying me across the ocean and the radio waves. I have so enjoyed your unique perspective on things, rest in peace. Well, first of all, you know, Lawrence was Lawrence, when Lawrence Fox was married to Billy Piper, did he spend his evenings tuning into American right-wing radio? And, and was he really doing so recently? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how many times Lawrence Fox, with the best one in the world, will have listened to, to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, but let's look at Rush Limbaugh's Hall of Fame. He uh, told a black caller that he couldn't understand to take that bone out of your nose and call me back. He used to have a section on his show called AIDS Update, which featured him reading out the names of people who died of AIDS while he played songs like I Know I'll Never Love This Way Again and Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. He said Michael J. Fox was exaggerating the effects of Parkinson's disease uh, to um, to uh, get more attention. Either he didn't take his medication or his acting. He said Kurt Cobain was a worthless shred of human debris. He said that the um, pictures of the torture and humiliation of prisoners at Abu Ghraib were um, no different than what happens in Skull and Bones initiations. We're going to hamper our military effort and we're really going to hammer them just because they had a good time. He said feminism was established to uh, allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream. He said uh, 
they were they said that there was an Indian holocaust of 90 million Indians and there's only four million left. They all have casinos. What's there to worry about? And last year on February the 20th, he said the coronavirus is being weaponized as yet another element to bring down Donald Trump. I want to tell you the truth about the coronavirus. The coronavirus is just the common cold. He also said uh, many years ago, there is no conclusive proof that nicotine is addictive. Uh, the same thing with cigarettes causing emphysema and lung cancer and heart disease. He did obviously die of, of lung cancer. Um, and those are the kind of people that, um, you know, Lawrence Fox um, uh, venerates, but also, you know, those are the kind of people who say those things and then they say, well, we didn't really, I didn't really mean it. I was just joking. That is the kind of, 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 of thing that we are close to having here um on a on a regular basis and you know i don't wish anyone uh dead and i don't really wish anyone harm um but i can't help feeling that um that um uh, crying over rush limbaugh uh is is not really the thing to do this week it's to forget all about rush limbaugh so lawrence fox is in the hall of show i agree good work steve lawrence fox is a silly billy He's a um, silly Billy. Yes. Now, talking of silly Billies. <laughs> well, we're almost at the end. And for me, dear listener, it is the end, underlined, um, because this will be my last New European uh, podcast. Um, and uh, it, it's almost exactly four years, actually, uh, that some daft sod came up with the idea to launch this podcast. And that daft sod was indeed me. Um, I pitched it, Steve, I don't know if you remember, but I pitched it to you and to Matt Kelly, of course, um, our dear leader. And uh, and I got sort of nods all around, which I was a bit shocked at. I didn't really expect that. Um, I thought it'd be just a good idea, Richard, run along. Um, so I was quite pleased with myself. And then about 10 minutes later, this techie arrived with a laptop and said, this is to do the podcast on. So <laughs> that was it. There was no training. I had no idea what I was doing. And I think now is the time for a, for a small confession um, because the first podcast was supposed to feature an interview with a chap called David Wilkinson, who did a Brexit film. Um, he was a film director and Matt Kelly. Uh, and that interview did indeed take place. Um, but sadly, it was for an audience of just one, because although I'd say all the kit was there and I'd set it up, um, about halfway through, I realised I hadn't pressed record. <laughs> and I, but I just let them carry on <laughs> during the interview. Um, so Matt and David, my apologies uh, that, that that never got released. Luckily, I never mentioned it and Matt never noticed. Um, but those early pods were pretty bad. Um, and um, I, I think um, thanks for sticking <laughs> with us through those early days. Uh, but very quickly, I think we started having fun. And that was the most important thing. That is the most important thing about this podcast. Um, because... Me and you, Steve, have had such a, a wheel of a time. And I think that's why you guys out there listening um, enjoy it. And we'll continue to enjoy it, of course, um, long after but I've gone. Bizarre, we must say, in the thousands. In the um, thousands, absolutely. I've cried. I have actually, this honest truth, I have cried with laughing on while recording this podcast on more than one occasion. And then I've listened to it back and cried again. Um, and uh, and it's, it's so great that you guys uh, love it as well. Um, it has been a labour of love for me. You know, in the early days, I'd often still be in the office at 10pm when you lot were all down the down the pub trying to cut out the ums and ahs, and we've given up on that, you might have noticed, um, and get it ready to be uh, in your ears first thing next morning. But it was absolutely worth it. I have utterly loved my time with the new European 
on pod more recently and, and way back in, in print as well. But alas, nothing either good nor bad can last forever. Alack! Um, so it is farewell from your loving host. I must just say, please let me say a few thank yous. Um, uh, Matt Kelly needs a massive thank you from me because he allowed me to um, to to do this and he allowed us to uh, carry on talking nonsense um, and I'm sure the nonsense will continue. Uh, Jerry Scott, of course, who for so long was the voice of reason on the podcast. Thank you, Jerry. Um, more recently, Cash Boyle, Matt Withers, Pete Raven have all played a huge part um, in, in the pod and are brilliant every single day. So thank you to all the guests that I have had the pleasure to chat to, from Jeremy Corbyn to Colonel Kurtz. Thank you very much. Um, But Steve, I think without you, I wouldn't have had as much fun as I have, you know, from the days when we used to do it in the bloody library at TNE headquarters um, to the stage. Of course, we did it live a few times. And more recently from our COVID bunkers, Thursday afternoon has been the highlight of my week for four years. Um, And it got me through some really tough times, actually, as well. Um, So massive thank you to you. You are a scholar, a gentleman, and I am absolutely proud to say that you are also a pal. Um, but of course, I think the biggest thank you has got to go to the listeners who've put up with me. Okay. Um, and he told me when you agreed with me and told me when you didn't. Um, but it's always done with with good grace and humour, almost always. Um, you know, when we've done those live events, it was so great to actually meet some of you guys and even have a beer with you, you know, and maybe one day uh, we will... Uh, me again so thank you for letting me in your ears i'm sure you'll be hearing from me again um and um uh, until then a little bit of bread and no cheese i should do it in my actual catchphrase shouldn't i for you one last do. time bit of bit of bread and no cheese. thank you all for your times now steve if if you're happy should we let mr campbell play those bloody bagpipes yes i will be back next week Without uh, me, <laughs> thank, but thank you for everything. It's been it's been a, a hilarious ride. Who could have imagined that we would stop Brexit um, <laughs> like we have done, and uh, the country would would be in such good hands uh, as a result of all Are our you blaming words. me. And I am, yeah. And um, and who who would have thought that our revolutionary um, our revolutionary um, way of doing things of having two middle-aged, one old, very <laughs> old man and one slightly younger but still middle-aged man <laughs> rambling on would take off as a, as a podcast medium for so well, many people. Indeed. What I can absolutely promise you is that um, I will still be listening and I will still be reading and I wish you all um, at, at the TNE all the success. You absolutely deserve it. You put your heart and soul into it and that is why it's a success. So... Thank you all for having me, and um, we will, I'm sure, speak again soon. Mr. Campbell, please do play those bloody bagpipes for one last time for me. Here you go. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.